This podcast is brought to you by RMA, the Risk Management Association. RMA's sole purpose is to advance the use of sound risk management principles in the financial services industry. Learn more at rmahq.org. Hello, this is Linda Tuck-Chapman. I'm president of Ontala Performance Solutions, and I'm an expert in third-party risk management. This is the RMA's podcast series, and it's part two of two on third-party lifecycle management. I'm drawing from an article that's published in the RMA Journal, April 2020, which is in turn an excerpt from my book, Third-Party Risk Management, Driving Enterprise Value, published by RMA and available on Amazon. Lifecycle management assumes that every third-party relationship has a beginning and an end, and in fact, the relationship may change over time. And every third-party relationship is part of your firm's extended enterprise, the ecosystem in which your company operates. Like any complex process, third-party lifecycle management involves a lot of key activities. You'll find in the article an illustration of a lifecycle management model, which some people refer to as a target operating model. And this model is a 12-step model. It certainly could be any number of steps. There's lots and lots of work to do. But this is a proven summary of the key steps and has been adopted by many organizations. So we do know that third-party lifecycle management really does start and end with a business need. And I must say that business requirements are often very difficult to define when it comes to third-party relationships. It's sort of like a fish swimming in water. It's hard to know exactly what you, what you want because it's second nature. So I do describe in the article a tool called Johari's Window. It's a thinking tool that allows you to walk through the known and the unknown of a relationship. And I've used it over many years and found it to be quite effective. Now, there's lots of steps that you want to go through in order to get to one of the biggest ones, which is very time-consuming, called due diligence. So if you refer to the lifecycle management model in the article, by the time you get to due diligence, you would have already gone through an inherent risk assessment, the risks that your company is exposed to by doing business with a third party. You will have chosen which third parties you want to deal with and whether you're renewing your agreement or you're getting into a new one. Screening is always advisable very early in the stage. It helps you weed out those that you have a problem with or existing ones or new ones that you may not want to do business with based on the the findings from the screening. You'll go to market and I highly recommend only to do intense due diligence on your finalist. So before you go to due diligence, I highly recommend that you confirm the inherent risk exposure. It will make the job of your second line of defense a lot easier when they're going through due diligence to know what they're evaluating the the control environment for. What services are you buying? What risks is the organization exposed to? So due diligence itself... Just the very nature of it, that the depth of it is really can be quite uh, can be quite weighty. So bear in mind it should be proportional with the criticality of their third party relationship. Criticality being a very discrete dimension, and the and the inherent risk that the relationship presents to your organization. Right, that is the second dimension, and please don't lump them together. They're not the same thing. The FFIEC says that due diligence should serve as a verification and analysis tool and provide assurance that the service provider meets your needs. But we are talking about risk, and what you're doing in due diligence is not just looking at needs and business requirements, but very discreetly assessing the strength of the third party's controls, the way they run their business, and this is really an internal view in their organization and not how they're doing business with you. So a lot of people do get confused about that. 
Now, in most third-party risk management programs, there's a real flurry of due diligence questionnaires that are sent out to the incumbent and possibly to prospective third parties. But as you recall, I said, try to just limit yourself to your finalist. These due diligence questionnaires have hundreds of questions, and sometimes you see thousands of them. They're posed, they're posed during the selection phase and then often again during the monitoring phase. So it's a lot of work. Now, imagine you're that uh, you're a third party on the receiving end. You're expected to quickly to respond to a growing avalanche of due diligence questionnaires. And each of them has comparable but not exactly the same questions. So they're pushing back. So some thir- third parties are push- pushing back. They won't even respond to your RP, much less your due diligence, unless they strongly believe that they will win your business. Some third parties are charging their clients for responding to due diligence questionnaires. I've seen anything two, three, four, five thousand dollars, and some of them simply send their standardized responses, particularly if they're your incumbent, and they ignore the actual questions you've asked them. All of this makes it a lot harder for your second line to evaluate the responses and the controls, and it really does eliminate the possibility of automating the evaluation process. Now, I'd also observe that some third parties, if you want to get on site, have due diligence week. So wait for that. (laughs) Sometimes you have to pay for that one too. So there's lots of times that you can, uh, lots of ways you can reduce the cycle time in your due diligence. I've listed 10 in the article, but I'm going to just touch on two. The first one that I've always been fond of is having a disqualification criteria. Yes, I did say disqualification criteria in your go-to-market activities. These are the minimum thresholds for third-party controls and often your basics in terms of business requirements, the ones that you're going to stand firm on and you really do want in order to get in business with them. You're actually doing them a favor if you're eliminating them early. For critical, complex, or, or high-risk relationships, it's a, it can be a good idea to segment the services and the risks into discrete bus- buckets. When you do that, basically, you're bringing things down to more bite-sized pieces, and it can allow you to be much more deliberate about de-risking or possibly changing uh, the scope or the access requirements, etc. So I think if you can break it down, especially in some of these complex relationships, you will find it will speed things up and make it easier. But regardless of the form and format of due diligence, it does help to bear in mind a few facts. First of all, these third-party audits like an SSAE 16 or a SOC 2, they cost money. And so if you want one of these and the one that your third party has or doesn't have, especially if they have ones, it has to actually match the scope of services in the service delivery location that you're looking at. Otherwise, it's not valid. So what I do want to remind you of is they're not all the same quality. Uh, You do need to comply with the user controls in order to be able to rely on it. And if there isn't one, it's going to be expensive. You know, it's, it's tens of thousands of dollars. And if they're not charging you for it, it may be showing up as a hidden cost. Now, the other thing I'd like to just remind you of is due diligence is not a fishing expedition. So I've seen some risk control experts to ask for information they don't really need or to send out these bulky due diligence questionnaires where, you know, a lot of it just doesn't apply. So this is part of risk adjusting your program. It makes it easier to get your responses back and to deal with them. But also, um, I think that your third parties are going to appreciate it as, as well. That's a very, very important point. Now, I want to go back to the concept of RRPs. They're not always a practical or feasible way to go. And so what we're observing is innovation and the speed of business means that these formal RRPs with such structured processes that take months and months are starting to really fall by the wayside. And I do appreciate that regulators would like you to do them, but there are alternatives. 
So what we're seeing is that some companies acquire new services from existing third parties. It certainly uh, speeds the process up. Uh, where they have an existing trusted relationships, or sometimes they get into third-party relationships either as a you know a proof of concept uh, or a pilot or something like that. And I've got a lot of information about how to do that safely in the new edition of my book, which will be coming out in the next couple of months. Or sometimes you can just replace an RFP with an informal market scan. I think what's most important here is that you do, do your due diligence and you can provide documentary evidence that say that you have done it. So the overall relationship, once you go through this, all this controls evaluation, it, you really should get to a risk rating. And it's not that hard to get to residual risk rating. So I think that, uh, you know, you really need to think about uh, if you can't get to one, maybe there's something wrong with you. Do the due diligence in your controls evaluation. Spend some time there. I do want to note that risk can be accepted by the wrong business leader. So this is because sometimes the contract owner is not the same as a business owner. What we see is in many organizations, technology or operations contracts are sourced, negotiated, managed, and owned by those businesses when in fact the risk belongs to the business. So think about basically, is there a way to get a dual sign-off or should it just go to the business or how you want to handle this, but keep the business involved. They, They need to know. As you move through the life cycle, I do recognize that regulatory guidance talks about monitoring as if it's one activity. But in fact, I think it's two. There are are two distinctly different activities. One of them is managing. That's the services, the operations, the cost, the contractual terms, the communication, the change management, etc. That belongs in the business. And the monitoring phase is about risk monitoring. Risk monitoring uh, is um, is really where you're checking the control environment. Now, given I've always uh, agreed with the regulators, you should keep a very close eye on the financial health of your third parties. And particularly now, in these uncertain times, it is a leading indicator if there's something going to be going wrong because it'll, it'll start to show up in their in their financial health probably sooner than anywhere else. So it's a really good idea to stay on top of this right now especially for your whole population, because let's face it, you do rely on them to at least some degree. Now, all good things must come to an end. So when you're deciding whether to exit or to shrink a third-party relationship, it's really important to review all the products and services they're delivering to your company. A material change in the scope of services will affect the ones that remain in force, whether it's through higher pricing, lower service levels, less management activities, or reduced investments simply in your in your uh, relationship. And in some cases, please be aware that the third party themselves may choose to terminate the remaining services because this smaller scope of the relationship is not strategic for them, it's not profitable, or perhaps both. So if a determination is made to exit some or all of the agreement, just make sure you have a controlled exit. And I see a lot of programs have not figured that out yet, is how to have a, a consistently controlled exit. So let's think about best value for money and results by ensuring that your third-party risk management program focuses on your end game. This means your methodologies, your tools, and your processes readily must enable risk-informed decisions. Isn't that what this is all about? You should also have sufficient insurance that third-party services controls, the performance, the cost, etc., meet your business needs, your legal needs, and your regulatory needs. And consider this. This is your extended enterprise. These third parties are part of your your overall ecosystem. And that means that investing in third-party risk management and protecting the exposure to risk and making sure it's in line with your company's risk appetite is what you're doing to protect your company's assets, 
your customers, your shareholders, and your reputation. I'm a big believer in third-party risk management. This is Linda Tuck Chapman. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to our podcasts. Whether you're a regular listener or a first-time listener, if you enjoy our podcasts, please provide a favorable rating on iTunes. Thank you.